Good afternoon and welcome to the 171st of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, my guest is sociologist Ryan Hagen, co-director of the New York City COVID-19 Oral History, Narrative and Memory Archive. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As of today, November 17th, 2020, there are 1,333,479 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 11,289,900 excuse me, 11,289,297 cases of COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 11,114,151 cases yesterday. There are now a total of 248,001 deaths reported, according to Johns Hopkins in the United States, up from 245,758 reported yesterday. We are now at the 2,000 deaths a day in that area mark, a place we have not been since the springtime. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline, Tadashi Sofura, Internment survivor and New York principal dies at 89. This was written by Richard Sandemir and published April 29th in the New York Times. Soon after World War II began, some of Tadashi Sofura's friends in Parlier, California turned against him. He was 11 when one classmate mocked him for his Japanese heritage. Hey, you're an enemy, he said, and I knocked a kid down, Mr. Sofura told Tesaku an oral history project about Japanese Americans in 2017. The principal came and knocked me down. Less than a year later on his 12th birthday, he, his parents and two older brothers were forced by the United States to move to one of the two Gila River internment camps in the Desert Valley in Arizona. One family among about 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry interned during the war. It was an ego destroying experience he told the Daily News of New York in 1966, and it is this that has made me determined to help others to use their suffering as youths for constructive goals. Mr. Tsufura found his avenue to help youngsters as a teacher in New York City public schools and one of the system's first Japanese-American principals. He once said he was the only Asian-American principal in the United States. Mr. Tsufura died of the novel coronavirus on March 29th at Mount Sinai Queens Hospital in Astoria, five days after his wife, 
Mabel Murakami Tsufura, a home economics teacher, became one of 13 people to die of the disease over a 24-hour period at Elmhurst Hospital, said their daughter, Lisa Tsufura. He was 89. He's also survived by another granddaughter, by another daughter, Eve Tsufura, and a grandson. Mr. Tsufura was born on September 17, 1930 in Los Angeles and moved to Parlier, a farming community near Fresno, when he was about six. His father, Shosetsu Safura, a Buddhist minister, and his mother, Midori Kamamoto Safura, a teacher, were born in Japan. He and his parents left the camp after two years and moved to Seabrook, New Jersey, where an industrialist employed former internees in a vegetable farming and packing business. Mr. Safura fought in the army on the front lines of the Korean War from 1951 to 1953. After his discharge, he earned a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from Fenn College, now Cleveland State University. Unhappy as a chemical engineer, he left for New York City, where one of his brothers lived. Learning of a teacher shortage in the public schools in the early 1960s, he took education courses at Brooklyn College and started a new career. He taught math in two Manhattan schools and was named the principal of PS41 in Greenwich Village, where he stayed for eight years before becoming a deputy superintendent of District 3 on the Upper West Side. He retired in 1988. Nancy Tenenberg, a former student who was an acting teacher in Pittsburgh, said by phone that Mr. Safura was more than just a great algebra teacher. He had, Ms. Tenenberg said, a nose for the kids who were on the fringe, like a goodwill hunting thing, kids who needed an adult. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. I'm really happy to bring back Ryan Hagen. Ryan is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Sociology at Columbia University. He studies risk and social change. His research explores how people imagine future dangers and try to avoid them, and how this process of risk perception and management shapes the social world in the present. He's currently working on a book based on an ethnography of emergency managers and continuity planners in New York City and is also currently the co-director of the New York COVID-19 Oral History, Memory, and Narrative Archive, a longitudinal study of the lived experience of the pandemic in New York City, which launched in April of this year and is currently conducting its second wave of interviews. Ryan, thank you so much for making time to join me today and to come back on COVID Calls. Of course. Thank you, Scott, for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, I'd like to start the way that I always do just to find out where you're calling from and, and how the pandemic is looking there today. And, and just before you tell me, uh, you and I were having a conversation before we started today that the last time we talked was April 6th. Mm-hmm. And on that day, the cumulative number of deaths in the United States was 8,358 um, compared to the two hundred and 40,000 that we're over now, um, two different worlds. Uh, so please uh, bring us up to date on how you've been, where you're calling from, and how it's looking there today. Sure. So I'm calling from New Haven, Connecticut, um, and cases are rising here as they are in most of the rest of the country right now. Um, a difference is that we suffered pretty badly here under the first wave of the pandemic in the spring. Uh, New Haven, as you probably know, is about halfway between Boston and New York City. 
um, which both had serious outbreaks of their own. We have a lot of commuters into New York City. Uh, I was one of them for a long time until uh, March when my university went remote. Um, so we had a strict lockdown in March and April, uh, which brought things more or less under control and a quiet summer as things started to reopen. Uh, but cases started creeping back up in late October or so, and that started accelerating um, a little bit more every day up until where we are now, which is about 5% um, positivity rate on our testing uh, in the state of Connecticut. Uh, although the hospitalizations and deaths um, so far have been much lower than we were in the spring. Um, and But it's strange because you know, we've moved back into phase two of the reopening, which means the public schools are closed, uh, they're remote, um, but there's still indoor dining happening uh, at half capacity. Um, Incredibly, you could go to a movie theater at half capacity if you really needed to see something. Um, and so we're not anywhere near as locked down as we were back then. Um, I remember just weeks and weeks of absolute dead silence outside. No planes in the sky, nothing. Um, and now people are driving on the streets. People are jogging. Everyone wears masks, of course. But um, the kind of palpable sense of dread that people had um, in the spring is not here, even though we're kind of headed, I mean, who knows where we're headed next, but it, it doesn't seem like a, like a cheerful coming couple of months. When's the last time you were on campus? A couple of weeks ago. Uh, so I, I, um, had to go back and do gateway testing, um, for my university has a very, uh, comprehensive testing strategy. And so I went back to do my gateway testing and then I've come back a couple of times to talk to colleagues and get things from my office um, which had which I had abandoned hastily. I taught a class on early in March, and I had anticipated that we'd have to go remote at a certain point, but I thought that I could make it one more week, and I didn't. And so um, even though I felt like I had been one of the more prepared people, um, in certainly in my social circle and even in my department, um, even I was caught off guard by how quickly it happened in the spring. So wow. I, I think that's something a lot of us have experienced, even those of us who study disasters, mm -hmm. the rapidity with which you had to make hard decisions, like I'm not going to be going back to do this, or we're not going to get together, we're not going to do these things. How many people had travel plans, even myself, mm -hmm. even throughout February, I thought I had travel plans still on the calendar for March. And I think I didn't get rid of my fall travel plans, probably till July like take them off the calendar. I surprised myself at how optimistic I continued to be. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those decisions just get made for you. I think that was right. that happened for a lot of people, yeah. So I wanna talk with you about this project, which when mm -hmm. we talked to you last was, was really um, still in the blueprint stage, I think, the New York mm -hmm. COVID-19 oral history, memory and narrative archive and we can talk about all different dimensions of it. Can you tell me, I guess, first of all, just kind of the origin story a little bit, how did it come about? And then I want to find the parameters of it and what kind of things you're learning. Sure. So this was a project that um, started to percolate pretty early in the pandemic. Um, I had been thinking about pandemics for some time because of my prior research, my dissertation research with disaster risk managers in New York City. And one of the things that uh, emergency managers have been thinking about 
um, since the turn of the millennium um, was uh, pandemic disease, particularly pandemic influenza, but SARS and MERS and uh, coronaviruses um, and pandemics of all kinds. And so I'd been on the lookout for pandemic risk for some time. And uh, as I watched the situation spin out of control um, with this novel coronavirus, I had a sense that we needed to, uh, we had an opportunity to do some research and get moving quickly. And so uh, with a colleague of mine, Denise Milstein in the sociology department um, and uh, some oral historians that we knew and respected from their work doing an oral history project after the 9-11 attacks, um, we got together and wrote a grant for the National Science Foundation's uh, rapid grant program and won a grant to do this research. And we uh, were able to get rapid IRB approval on it and funding for it and were able to begin our interviews as early as April. So I think that my first interview mm. that I personally conducted uh, was um, probably just a couple of days before I came on your program, actually. Mm. Um, and so, and when I say, and then we also were able to hire a, a team of interviewers um, many of them oral historians and some of them sociologists to help us uh, with recruitment and interviews. And so since April, uh, we've interviewed more than 200 people in New York City. And um, we have gathered a diary study from uh, a couple hundred more than that of people who've been contributing, you know, sometimes as little as a sentence to, you know, paragraphs worth of their experience of the pandemic on a rolling basis. And so, um, we have the in-depth interviews with people, we have the diary study, and we're also collecting survey data on people um, to collect their sociodemographic data, to collect uh, their attitudes and behaviors about the pandemic, how closely they're following it, where they seek information, mm. um, and their stress response. Um, so that's, that's where we are. And we've always planned to do a longitudinal study. And so we're um, now in the middle of our second wave. So we've followed up now with many of the people that we contacted first in the spring to see how they continue to fare under the pandemic. Um, and we hope to do a third wave uh, after vaccination becomes widely available and the pandemic nears a close. Interesting. So you have these sort of three different populations, or maybe it's one population that you're mm -hmm working with in three different ways, but you have the the interviews with the inter with the interviewer taking the lead, then you have the the journaling or where the interviewee is is actually generating their own writing and then you have the sort of demographic survey. Is it the same group of people or it's three different groups? There's some overlap. So everyone who everyone who uh, has been interviewed has taken the survey and, but anyone can take it in fact. And we have, uh, there'll be a much larger sample in the survey than we have in either the diary study or the interviews. And this will help us to generalize out a little bit uh, the experiences of our, of our narrators as we call them um, to the general population. Um, and not everyone who has decided to contribute to the diary study uh, has been interviewed and vice versa. And of course, we're still enrolling people for the diary study. And so if anyone wishes to uh, participate in that, I can share a link uh, later on in the, in the show. Well, that was my next question is, how does one go about recruiting people to do something like this? 
It was particularly difficult in the early stages of this when we were at the peak of the pandemic, people were in shock, um, everything was locked down. We were required by our IRB to not go out and recruit. We couldn't even post flyers um, because of infection risk uh, to other people. They were worried about us, but they were worried about us infecting other people. Um, and so we uh, did a combination of things. We reached out through our social networks. We reached out through contacts we had from uh, research, from our professional world. Um, we recruited people on the internet and um, snowball sampled from there. And so the further um, the further out you go through someone's social network, the further away and more diverse the sample becomes. I see. That's It's really interesting that the IRB, I wonder if the attitude would be different now at all in those in those earlier days we still had very significant concern about surfaces even mm -hmm. a piece of paper on a billboard or something like that we would have been mm -hmm. been worried about so you were trying to undertake this at a time which there were still a great number of unknowns about how infection actually worked and there, I mean, there were strict lockdowns in the city. I mean, it was, you were not supposed to leave your home for any reason. Right, that's um, right. And this was actually something that was interesting for us. You know, it, it's not standard sociological practice to do, or in oral history, to do interviews remotely. And um, there are all kinds of reasons that we thought before now that online interviews would be less rich. It's harder to build rapport with people. Um, there are all kinds of technical difficulties. It's hard to get people might not have privacy in their homes that they would be able to have if you were taking them somewhere else to interview them. And of course, there are the technical difficulties of some people may not have internet access or may not have uh, computers to to dial in to do the interview. Um, but we found that it also provided some opportunities for us. The first was, of course, that we could get people quickly um, in the middle of the pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of the peak of the pandemic in New York. Uh, it also gave us access into people's homes in a way that... Um, we think was really rich. Early on in the interviews, you hear the ambulance sirens, uh, sirens in New York City uh, from people's homes. You see the toilet paper they have stacked up, right? You see people adjusting in their home to this chaotic situation in a way that you otherwise wouldn't have and you wouldn't have been able to capture in kind of in-person standard um, interviewing techniques. And of course, people adjusted uh, socially to the norms of talking to each other over Zoom and other video chat platforms in a way that just wasn't common before. So the world changed around us in a way that online interviewing became... Um, possible and and quite good actually that's really fascinating because i remember having conversations but i was thinking of valerie marlowe particularly who's at the disaster research center we're having these conversations in the spring and really i was asking you know how are we going to possibly do what we call you know interview driven social science ethnography at this time and as you said, um, not only did people do it, they improvised, uh, and it's opened other dimensions that you would definitely wouldn't have had access before. Say a little bit more, for example, of the view of the interviewee within the context of their home. I mean, that's not generally the way you would undertake an interview set like this, is it? Generally not. I mean, generally, you're not going into people's homes. It, it depends on the study, of course. Um, if you're doing a community study, if you're doing an ethnography where you're, um, where it makes sense for you to be in people's homes, that that would be standard. But for but for you know my dissertation research, when I was talking with professionals, we would meet either in my office or in their office, or we would meet in in a cafe or somewhere in public. Of course, you can't uh, 
meet in public anymore. At least you couldn't. Um, and so, yeah, we were um, meeting in people's homes, but of course they were meeting in our homes, which I thought was fascinating and a, an interesting way of getting rapport. Um, they could see us and they could see where we lived and they could see, it seemed more intimate um, in a way. It was less kind of alienating and impersonal um, to sit in a, than sitting in like a Columbia office, which they're nice, but they're also very cold in some ways. And it can be off-putting mm. to be on an Ivy League campus. That's interesting. I hadn't considered that either, sort of changing so many of the dynamics of how the rapport between the interviewer and the interviewee mm -hmm. works. Tell me a little bit more about how you, what you were aspiring to in terms of who you wanted to mm -hmm. interview. I mean, I noticed from the, from the title of it again, I mean, it's it, all it, the only limit it draws around itself is New York. <laughs> well, uh, that's and no yeah. offense to people who are listening right now in Albany or Schenectady and other places. <laughs> of course, there's always the upstate downstate thing. And when I posted this earlier, somebody I know who lives upstate liked it, and I was wondering later if I was going to hear from them about that. But say a little bit more about who's who's New York and and who were you looking for for the study. We wanted to limit it to New York City mostly because we wanted to get the granular detail of a community. Um, the virus moves through social networks, it moves through public spaces and institutions, um, and so it's unique in the social locations in which it spreads and builds and, and where it makes people suffer. Uh, and so we thought that we could do we had the capacity to do a relatively fine-grained study of our community, and it was going to be our community in New York City. And we defined New York City a little bit generously, a little bit broadly. So people who commuted into the city to work were New Yorkers, uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, people who lived in New Rochelle, people who you know were in New York City for business or for school, but lived outside the five boroughs were still New Yorkers. But the idea was to get New York City residents um, and people who work in the city, and to structure the sample in sort of three different groups arranged by proximity to infection risk and to the response to the pandemic. So one group, maybe the largest group, is everyday people who were locked in their homes, for example. Um, if I had been recruited to the study, I would have been one of those people. Uh, people who um, were suffering through the pandemic but weren't necessarily at high risk for infection out in the community. At least that's how we imagined it when we were designing this back in March. The second group was people who were first and second responders, essential workers, people whose jobs required them to expose themselves to the community and to infection risk. And then there's this third category uh, which I insisted on because of my prior research, which was people who operated at a more strategic level of the disaster response, but um, were not necessarily exposing themselves to infection risk on a day-to-day -day basis. So emergency managers, public health officials, contact tracers, um, elected officials, people who were directing the response, um, but weren't in an ICU intubating people or weren't you know, doing deliveries or weren't driving cabs and Ubers or driving trains and exposing themselves to infection risk that way.
say a little bit more about why you wanted to have that dimension to it, because it is, of course, we always struggle with this in disaster to say who the victim is. If someone dies, that seems a little, that's clear, although mm -hmm. it's obviously mm -hmm. even counting the deaths is, is never clear. But once you get outside of that category of suffering, it becomes very difficult to police those boundaries. So it's interesting you're talking about you wanted to have essential workers who were putting them, their bodies in the in the way of the virus, but also those who might be engaged in that work, but from remote control, like emergency managers. What does that illuminate that you don't get by talking to essential workers? We wanted to make sure that we were capturing the the social lives and the thought processes of people who were directing this response. And um, to be able to create it as a kind of a historical record, but also to have it as part of an archive alongside people who were experiencing it in different ways. Um, people who had a bird's eye view of the entire pandemic, people who were caught up on the front lines of it, uh, and people who were um, watching it from from afar or watching it come up to their doorstep, and to be able to juxtapose all of those, to be able to to because again, again, this is going to be a public archive. It's not just going to sit in a researcher's cabinet. People are in the in the general public will be able to to see this, and of course, historians and sociologists and scholars as well. Um, but to be able to click and say, to watch one minute um, someone in Astoria um, who is you know, a teacher at home because their school is closed to see an interview next with the operator of the Q train that goes by their house mm -hmm. to see the doctor at, at um, NYU medical center. And then to see, you know, a hospital administrator to see a public health official, to see their city councilman and to be able to see how all of these different people understand the virus, understand the pandemic, understand risk, and what everyone else is going through, I thought was extremely meaningful to be able to put that in the same sort of research context. And of course, also, you know, I think it's extremely important for us to be able to capture in ways that might not be captured uh, automatically um, the response to this pandemic. Um, one of the reasons that people who were engaged in the strategic part of the response wanted to talk to us is that, of course, there are going to be after action reports and people take notes, but um, it's rare to be able to get a, a chance to have an hour to sit down and talk to somebody. Um, it's rare for everybody, actually, um, to get a chance to sit down and focus on for an hour what their experience has been in this pandemic. And so people wanted to capture what was going on in a way that was a little more permanent than the ephemeral world around them. And so that's what I wanted to capture in this research. Just want to stay with that for a second. I, last month, I had a chance to talk uh, with Shannon Mattern, mm -hmm. who's at the New School, and with um, two uh, two students working with with her, uh, Emily Bow and Aaron Simmons, and we talked in great detail about about how this the social geography of the city has been in flux at multiple different points throughout the pandemic. And you you just echoed that, but in a way I wasn't expecting, which is that this archive may very well allow people to go back if they wanted to assemble a geography of people who might be in a in in one borough or one neighborhood or maybe even one block, I don't know, um, and see how their experiences were 
different, maybe intersecting, but that those people wouldn't necessarily have known each other throughout this throughout this pandemic. Will there those kind of search tools be available? I mean, how will you reassemble? I was going to ask you this later, but it made me think of it when you were talking about that. How will somebody be able to take these interviews and, and reassemble them to build those kinds of views, if you will? That is a topic of hot conversation in our research team right now. Okay. Um, and you know, because we've kind of been been building this plan as it's been going down the runway the entire time. And sure. what we're really interested in is doing is making search, um, making the kind of uh, the kind of analysis and search that you're talking about possible. So on a couple of different scales. So we're doing extremely high quality transcription of all the interviews, which we will tag and index. And so you'll be able to search for all the times that people talk about you know, specific things. There was, a, there was a moment in the pandemic where everyone was very concerned about gloves. And so there are people who wanted to wear gloves. There were people who thought that people who wore gloves were diluting themselves and that it was counterproductive. So you can look for specific words. You can look for keywords that, that uh, correspond to different topics. So um, different frames of reference. Whenever people talk about um, past disasters that they've been through or whenever people talk about... Um, about fears that they have when they talk about race and racism and discrimination. Um, so we'll be able to have different levels of, of keyword searches and, and literal um, word by word searches. And we do hope to be able to do a kind of geographic search as well by borough, by neighborhood. Um, we're deciding whether or not zip code would be useful or not, um, but we're hoping to be able to do that. Yeah. Tell me about interviewing elected officials or other government officials. It has been difficult uh, to get people to come uh, and participate in the project. Of course, um, we have a standing invitation to Mayor Bill de Blasio to come and be interviewed for the project. Um, I know that future historians would appreciate it. Uh, the, it is difficult to get people to take time out of their busy schedules to sure. come and talk to us. But also, I think people are a little hesitant to talk in the middle of a high stakes response that they're in the middle of. Mm. Um, for all kinds of reasons, for the reasons that people always are nervous about um, being on the record when there's a high stakes disaster response going on. Um, and so we've had less luck talking with elected officials than I, that I would have hoped. But I think that now that um, as, as the pandemic moves, maybe through this wave, we'll have better luck. And as, as the, as the event comes to a close, we'll have better luck with people being willing and uh enthusiastic about telling their story and being able to frame this event as it's coming to its conclusion. Well, Governor Cuomo didn't wait for it to be over before writing a, I haven't read it, but isn't, doesn't he have a book out already or coming you have, up? You have the beauty of a, of a book is that you have full control over it, right? It's something that right. you don't have in an oral history interview. I mean, although of course, you know, when we're talking to people, we, we, we insist that they feel as if they are in the driver's seat um, and can talk about what they want to talk about. Um, but uh, there's a different level of control if you're a, a governor writing a book, um, which may or may not be premature, but I'm not going to weigh in on that. Why, why, though, does a first responder, essential worker, or anybody, why do you think they feel more free to let their own story sort of live out there in the complex of stories versus an elected official, say? I mean, at, at one level, I think I know it's kind of an obvious answer is there's responsibility and accountability and fear of lawsuit and people want to get reelected, mm -hmm. but they're also, they're human. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And scrutiny, right? I mean, yeah, there's sure. there's public scrutiny to elected officials in a way that there isn't to um, to a lot of to most of the rest of us. Um, so I think that a lot of people are are more free to talk when they're not worried about losing their job because of it. Um, and we've certainly had people circumscribe parts of their interview because they're worried about getting in trouble professionally. Um, and that's relatively rare. But for most people who are involved in the project, um, you know, even we've we've talked with contact tracers who were very open with us about about the strengths and the shortcomings of the contact tracing program. Um, and so people want to tell their story and they want it to be a part of the public record. Have you talked to physicians? We've talked to many physicians, really and many nurses. Yeah. We were tell very me, lucky. Tell me about that. Um, these are in a lot of ways, the toughest interviews that we did for this project because of the amount of death that these people have seen. Um, and not just the amount of it, the volume of it, and the amount of time at which the hospitals were were, over, were overflowing, um, but a sort of how close many of the hospitals came to coming undone and how much of a challenge to their identity as healers and people who could save lives, uh, how much that was shaken by shortages of PPE, equipment, staff, beds, um, the fact that they were seeing people who were among the sickest people they'd ever seen, and they were seeing them every day. And in fact, they were only seeing COVID patients. And so there's the volume of suffering that people were seeing, but also, you know, we weren't only talking to, you know, ER physicians and ICU nurses. We were talking because of the, the way that so many of the hospitals in New York were kind of calling on every able-bodied person. It was people from other specialties in medicine who are coming in to COVID wards and dealing with COVID patients. People in specialties that aren't really usually acquainted with high volumes of mortality, um, you know. Uh, pediatricians, nephrologists, radiologists who were suddenly confronted with many, many patients they couldn't save um, and who were who were passing away on their watch. And that wore a lot of people down. Um, it was stressful for a lot of people. Uh, and um, those were difficult interviews to conduct difficult to sit through, to listen. I make it a point to listen to interviews that other people have done in the project. And I always, I, you know, especially during the um, early phases of the project and the pandemic, I would listen to uh, interviews uh, as I was walking, I was taking a, you know, I'd take a, a stress relieving walk around the neighborhood and I would listen to these interviews and they're surprisingly intimate and people really open up mm. and just the level of, distress that people have absorbed and gone through was, um, it was a lot to think through. In a case yeah. like that, where you're talking with a physician, is it possible that the interviewers on your team would have been the first to listen at that length? They were talking to each other all the time. The doctors. The doctors and sure. the nurses. I, I don't want to limit this just to doctors because of course, nurses of were course. also the front line of this as well. Right, of Allied course. Allied health, everybody. Let's include um, them all. Sure. Um, 
they were talking to each other. A lot of them were talking to their spouses. Um, and they were, they were talking. Um, but for a lot of times we were the only, we were the first people that they spoke to outside of their family or their professional lives. And there's something different about sitting down and conducting an oral history interview with somebody. There's a lack of judgment. There's a kind of a lack of judgment. There's a lack of, um, it's, if I had, you know, um, a nickel for every time someone told me at the end of the interview that it felt like they'd been to therapy, um, mm -hmm. I would, you know, be able to pay off my student loans before um, the Biden administration cancels them all. <laughs> um, but the, but it's, it's, it is a relief to people. And so we had a lot of that sense at the end of these interviews. I think that part of it is, is really interesting and maybe very unexpected to people. Again, that social scientist is not some, um, I don't know, uh, omniscient. I mean, you know, the social sciences have changed a lot mm -hmm. and the way we think about these relationships and you've used that word already, relationships and, and relational. Let me just stay with this in terms of the interview. Um, how do they, how have they changed you or what's your experience in the listening? You were just talking about it a little bit now. Uh, I, I'll share for myself. I have talked to very few physicians um, but oftentimes when a COVID call session ends, I'm really sorry it ended. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm also really tired, kind of worn through by it. Um, and then I think about it a lot after, sometimes even weeks after little phrases or things come back to me in unexpected ways. So mm -hmm. hearing the story is also impactful. And I wonder if you're noticing that with yourself and the team. We've taken a lot of steps to protect ourselves and to give ourselves um, ways of decompressing. So one of the things that we always do in the interview is structure them. We try to have a kind of a emotional arc to the interview. So if you get into some pretty heavy emotional territory with people, you don't end the interview right afterwards, or you don't allow, no matter where, the, no matter when it comes up, right? Um, you try to end on a more positive note. We ask people what they're looking forward to um, as we're leaving. We ask people, we try to make people laugh. You know, if, if we've had a hard time together, um, you empathize with people. You, you talk about how difficult it is. Um, you don't want to leave them. You don't want to surface a traumatic memory and then leave them with it. You want to heal a little bit in the conversation. And so we've been doing that. And for ourselves also, I mean, I, have we all of us on the on the interviewing team? Everyone in the project writes field notes after every interview, hmm. um, and my practice has been a little bit different, which is that I I record an, a voice memo uh, of hmm. of my field notes after every interview, and I I find myself always pacing the room when I do it. So I'll talk for fifteen minutes about everything that I remembered from the interview, how it went, and then I type up um, field notes uh, based on that recording later, um, maybe the next day, um, to let it all congeal a little bit. But the, the act of walking it out and shaking it out and talking through it has been a way for me to decompress. But the, but the, the, um, how has it changed me? I mean, I, like you, oftentimes I find myself recalling bits of conversations, um, weeks and months later, mm -hmm. um, even from people who aren't physicians, even, even details that aren't particularly traumatic or, or that otherwise wouldn't stand out, but, and I'll, I'm sure I'll talk about some of them through the rest of this conversation, but 
Um, I find that happening, but also um, it's changed me in a way in, in how I think about this virus and my own risk in the pandemic. One thing that a couple of physicians and nurses have spoken to us about is they found themselves especially sensitive to the risk of infection um, because they were seeing people who were the sickest people that they had seen. They were seeing the sickest people in the pandemic and a lot of them didn't make it. And so if they thought they were feeling something that was a COVID symptom, their mind went to a lot of scary places very quickly. Not for everybody, but this is a thing that we heard more than once. And I think that that rubbed off on me secondhand a little bit. Um, mm. I not And not just talking to physicians and nurses about this, but talking with people who've had the virus um, in ways that left them severely ill, but not quite severely ill enough to go to the hospital. I remember a conversation that will always stick with me with um, a firefighter uh, who uh, contracted the virus on the job, he thinks, and woke up one morning and was feeling a little under the weather, developed COVID. And uh, he told me that it was, um, the thing that sticks with me is he told me that it took him 45 minutes to brush his teeth because his energy was so low. Um, and that for several days, it was all he could do to lay on his couch uh, and you know the TV would be on or whatever, and he would watch uh, his stomach rise and fall with his breath like an ocean swell. And I think about that a lot when I'm going to the grocery store every two weeks or when I'm thinking about whether or not I'm gonna go, um, you know, when I'm dropping my kids off uh, for a play date or something. So no, my family is not traveling for Thanksgiving. Yeah, we're gonna absolutely. we're gonna try not to contract this virus. And more than that, I'm very conscious about not passing it on to anybody else. Hmm. So that's yeah, that's how it's changed me. Um, it's given me um, hypersen not maybe not a hypersensitivity, but a sensitivity to infection risk that I otherwise wouldn't have. Just a reminder to everybody, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Ryan Hagen today about the New York COVID-19 Oral History, Memory, and Narrative Archive, of which he's co-director. I'm going to stay with a little bit of some of the themes that are emerging from the interviews. I'm interested to know um, what kind of comparable disasters people reach to to make sense. I'm interested also to know the kind of time frames that they're constructing. You're focused on New York. So the experience is one that only a few other cities, regions in America will have had, which is that before nationally we'd made sense mm -hmm. and before politically it had become clear the weirdness that this would come to occupy by summer in American politics, New Yorkers were, was in their face. It was in their communities. It was in their homes. Those or any other ways you want to sort of tell us about how people that you're interviewing are making sense of the pandemic. We asked almost everybody what kinds of prior events in their lives they were using to make sense of the pandemic. And there were a couple of things that you would expect. So people reached back to 9-11 pretty often, but always in a sort of a qualified way. Early on in the pandemic, when we would ask people about this and they would say, well, it was a little bit like 9-11, but it's almost sacrilegious. Someone actually used that word. It's sacrilegious to compare this to 9-11 or um, an emergency manager that I spoke with said it was like 9-11, but it's everywhere. 9-11 was unique because it was within the city. It was confined to a, a relatively small geographic area. 
And it also sprawled across space and time, right? it across, uh, sprawled across time as well as space. 9-11 was a punctuated event and this is going on forever, it seems. So people talked about 9-11, but also, but again, you know, it was different because the sense of solidarity that people felt after 9-11, not everybody, but uh, there was there was a sense of solidarity in the city, um, also a sense of exclusion, um, obviously. But um, there was a much more sense of being a part in this, and that's how people thought about it differently from 9-11. People talked about Hurricane Sandy somewhat, blackouts, um, the 2000 and I guess three blackout, people talked about it, um, you know, blackouts in the nineties and the seventies, people talked about other kind of, uh, quintessential disaster events. But what was more interesting to me was the non-typical disaster events uh, that people reached to, to talk about this people who, went through state collapse in post in Soviet states, people who went through the breakup of Yugoslavia, people who went through the Iran-Iraq war in, in Iran, who talked about how this reminded them of that. Um, and even on a smaller scale, um, people talked about personal experiences they had that felt like this to them. Um, you know, someone brought up the the time that they had bed bugs, and this reminded them of having bed bugs because they were you know, everything was kind of suspect. You had no idea if you were going to get there was going to be contagion. You couldn't see anybody. Um, you know, but you know, moments of isolation, times that people were hospitalized. Um, on a much more serious note, one of the very first interviews that I did, um, people started talking about um, the the HIV AIDS crisis and how this brought back memories of that for them. The experience of not knowing whether or not physical contact could kill you or someone that you loved is something that it, the pandemic reopened a lot of wounds for people for that reason. And so while there's a lot of institutional carryovers from HIV AIDS, right? Anthony Fauci was, was sure. in the government yeah. back then and, and um, there's a lot of holdover. And of course, HIV was one of the novel emerging infectious diseases that brought this pandemic era into existence, you know, marked the beginning of this new pandemic era, the very personal experiences that people have had um, have been brought back to the surface, particularly, I think, in New York because of this pandemic. Mm. The, I'm also interested in the degree to which COVID-19, somehow the boundaries of it, particularly after, as we at the end of May, with George Floyd and as we get into June, the boundaries of what this disaster is, and I've talked about this a lot on COVID calls with, with people who've helped me process that. I wonder mm -hmm. how you've connected with that in the interviews where you set out to talk about COVID and we end up talking about poverty or we end up talking about um, you know, race or any number of other you know, everyday disasters in America keeping focused on the pandemic is sometimes hard because it becomes sort of the background context for understanding everything else that's sort of diseased in our society. I, I don't, I guess my question is, you know, how have you drawn the boundaries around what, what is and what isn't a COVID-19 story? So 
what is and what isn't a COVID-19 story is an interesting question, right? It's a pandemic. The whole demos is involved, right? So even if you're trying to ignore the pandemic, it's everything to a certain extent is a, is a COVID-19 story. So, you know, we, we talk uh, with people that are, you know, stories that are obviously part of the pandemic, um, but we talk about things that are peripheral to it. You know, we talked a lot about people's sex lives and their dating lives under the pandemic or the fights they got into uh, at the dog park with people because everyone's tensions were running so high. Um, and, you know, the fights that people had with their parents about whether they were taking it seriously enough uh, or or um, parents themselves who are trying to deal with how to talk uh, to their children about this, um, young children who are stuck at home at school. Um, and one of the things that was really interesting to me was how the movement for Black Lives began to intersect with and intertwine with people's stories the more the summer went on, and particularly after Memorial Day weekend, right. uh, after uh, George Floyd's killing um, and um, and the protests that followed that, in particularly in New York City, but of course all across the the country and people were talking about race and racism before then. So I think people very early on recognized that there were deep racial disparities in who was getting sick and dying from this disease. But those conversations really broke open, I think, uh, after Memorial Day and um, for a number of reasons. So some people made this connection explicitly. There is explicit connections between systemic racism, police violence against black and brown people and, and racial disparities and who is suffering from the pandemic. It's the same forces at work a lot of people uh, understood very early on. Uh, and and for, for people of color in New York City, the experience of the pandemic um, was made, you know, racism became a kind of a double burden on top of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Do you trust the police to enforce social distancing uh, without harassing you, without, you know, engaging in violence against you? Um, do you trust doctors to treat you and take you seriously in the hospitals? Um, do you, um, you know, do you feel comfortable wearing a mask, right? So race and racism was on, was deeply intertwined with this, but there were also people who never made that, ex that, that connection explicitly, but the conditions of the pandemic brought the protests to the fore. Um, and it, and the protests changed their understanding of the pandemic in a lot of ways. One of which was it gave a sort of moral valence to the pandemic that it might not have had otherwise. People saw that the world had stopped in a certain way, and they wanted all of that sacrifice to be worth it, to have to um, to result in some sort of positive change. Um, and for a lot of people, the the protests were the first time that they had been outside of in New York uh, was the first time they'd been out of their homes for non-essential reasons and in a large crowd. And so if you could, gather 10,000, you know, tens of thousands of people together in the city, all wearing masks, and you could gather them together and not see a large immediate spike in cases. That changed a lot of people's understanding of what was safe to do in New York City. Um, there was a sense early on for a lot of people that the air was just unsafe every time you stepped outside of your door. And, and the protests really changed that for people, for a lot of people that we've spoken to. And, um, so the, the urgent need for justice that brought people out into the streets, the, um, um, whether they explicitly made the connection between the pandemic and the broader problem of systemic racism or not, um, these stories were deeply intertwined, uh, particularly the further the summer went on. I'm thinking again about the, the uniqueness of the New York City 
experience here too, that what you're describing is already uh, a terrible month of March and an unimaginably bad month of April. Um, for most Americans, the Black Lives Matter, I mean, the violence of May and the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests came first before the summer spikes and what they experience now. So the temporality is is kind of reversed. And so I've been thinking about that, but then also thinking about how, and this comes back to the question about who participates and why. If, if you did a project like this in Tallahassee or Denver or Dallas or Phoenix, you would also surface suspicion of government denial, and maybe you've surfaced it and I don't know, but I'm thinking about the ways that the New York experience is, and, and that's, that's not to say there might be more or fewer conspiracy theorists in Manhattan than there are in Tallahassee, but there was just a lot more concrete evidence of the gravity of this thing for mm -hmm. people in New York City than there were for people in Texas or Arizona early on. So I guess my, I guess my question is, you know, again, in that regard, how unique do you think is the New York experience, how generalizable maybe to other cities, particularly because of the flow of events being different. And maybe that denialist thinking isn't as strong in New York. That's a, I'm throwing that out there. Maybe that's not right. Well, New Yorkers will always say that our experience is unique, um, well, but um, more more, more yeah. broadly, I mean, it, it is true, right? <laughs> there, there were people, there were denialists in New York City and there are denialists um, still, yeah. right? Uh, even on. though we went through this, this problem. Uh, we went through the, the spike early on. Um, but I think you're right that people didn't see it as, people were much less likely to be confronted with the reality of this pandemic outside of New York City in the United States uh, up until, in some cases, even now, right? Um, and I have some, I don't know that sympathy is the right word, but some sense of understanding. One of the things that we found in this study is that people may know intellectually that the disease is coming, but they don't really grasp the full gravity of it until it either affects someone that they know or someone that they can deeply sympathize with uh, or that is somewhat somehow like them. Um, so, you know, doctors who, who knew that this was a problem, but they didn't take it seriously until they saw colleagues in Italy um, talking about the horrors of, of what was going on in the hospitals there. Um, and we see that over and over again. Um, and as I was talking before about, you know, my own experience with this pandemic, um, I would think differently about it if I a, hadn't been thinking about disaster risk management and pandemic management for years anyway, because of my research, but also if I hadn't heard so many direct stories about it. And so, you know, we live in secondhand worlds, right? So everything that we, we know about much more about the world than we ever uh, directly experience. And so um, I can understand why some people may um, not truly believe in the gravity of what this pandemic can do to a, a city, to a community. Mm. I understand that to a certain extent. Um, but the question of generalizability is an interesting one. You know, I, I should say I'm glad that you know, one of the things that I'm grateful for is that there are a lot of oral history projects and a lot of interview projects sure. that are going on around the country. And so we're going to be able to find out what people yeah. in Tallahassee were thinking, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, 
to, to bring the, that question up a scale, how generalizable is the experience of the United States in this pandemic? Right. Maybe less than we would expect. You know, I mean, I think that if, if this pandemic had happened under a different administration, it would be totally different. Um, so, you know, temporally, it's a unique moment. And geographically, it's a unique moment. Um, and so there are certain things that will be generalizable in our, in our archive. Right. Um, and certain things that will be unique to New York and some things that will be unique to this moment. But you can learn by analogy. So I think that there's a lot, to, a lot of lessons to be learned through this project. Well, I want to just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Ryan Hagen today. I want to, that was what I was going to ask you next. Um, once you have this constructed, what do you hope people do with it? We want this archive to be a kind of a memorial for people uh, who've lost loved ones, people who have lost a way of life the world, a kind of world came to an end when this pandemic happened. And um, so in a way, everyone's lost something. Um, but we have not had a lot of opportunities to mourn and memorialize this. And so this will serve that purpose. We hope that it will be a resource for public health uh, professionals and researchers uh, to better understand how everyday people understand public health messaging. <laughs> we captured a lot of confusion that people had around masks and the mm -hmm. absolute um, mess that we made of, of talking about mask wearing. And, um, you know, people talk about, about the, about public health communication quite a lot, actually, in this, in this uh, research, people talk about Andrew Cuomo's uh, press conferences. People talk about how their parents overseas would watch it on YouTube and then call them to talk to, about it, you know, all kinds of yeah. stuff. Sure. So, but but also kind of on a, on a more serious level, the the behaviors that people took to protect themselves, to keep themselves informed. Um, we hope that historians will find it interesting. Uh, we hope that medical researchers will find it interesting the way that doctors and nurses and EMTs dealt with patients and dealt with the pandemic. We think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned by reviewing this. And we think that it's also the case that you know, we won't know what is the most interesting thing about the research that we've done until far later. I mean, we, we've already had this uncanny experience of, you know, when we began this project, um, the Black Lives Matter protests of the summer hadn't happened yet, by right. definition. Right. And so that changed the trajectory of the project. It changed people's understanding of the pandemic. And it changed, and we think that that will happen again, and it will continue to happen. The events... Uh, of this year will continue to be framed differently. They'll continue to change orientation and direction based on future events. So um, one of the best things that we can do is to capture as much as we can, preserve it, make it searchable, and hope that people will use it and find it useful, which we think that they will. I'm so impressed with that idea of the work itself as a form of memorial, um, as a form of participation, um, in something that's 
as you said, everyone has lost from. There's this other, I've been thinking a lot, I've been using these um, firefighter uh, oral histories that were done in the couple of months. I'm sure you know them well. The fire department, New York City Fire Department did them um, in the couple of months after September 11. Mm-hmm. And, you know, pretty common theme in these is, you know, the building fell on somebody and they crawled out or they, you know, just there's the dramatic arc. You don't have to explain. It's very it's very clear in those. Um, but they were taken. Um, you, you know, there's a, usually a question in there about about stress, about how you're feeling something along those lines. And it seemed to me just in reading them that that the language of post-traumatic stress just wasn't there yet mm-hmm. in 2001. So I could see that as another interesting way to use these interviews you're collecting is to take a disaster, a New York centric one, like September 11, and just even look at sort of how, with what kind of specificity or language someone can describe something like mental stress mm-hmm. um, across those those two events. I, I, I mean, that's just one example of a way I could see somebody using this, not even in a sociological sense, but in a, in that sense, almost in an epidemiological or a mental health um, sense. And in a kind of a broader sense, I mean, one of the books that I drew a lot of inspiration from, from this project was Svetlana Alexeyevich's Voices from Chernobyl or Chernobyl yeah. Prayer, as it gets yeah, translated amazing. sometimes. Um, and one of the things that was so striking to me, uh, she talks in the introduction about how Chernobyl was a catastrophe of time and that she understood it as opening up a new era of catastrophe, that things were going to happen to us that were beyond all experience and were fundamentally different and that challenged our understanding of ourselves, of the world, of technology, of nature, of death and life itself. And um, all of the year, things that have happened in the years since continue to bear that out. So Voices from Chernobyl isn't just a book about Chernobyl. It's a book about 9-11. It's a book about um, the Fukushima incident. It's a book about mm-hmm. the coronavirus in the ways that people face disasters that are unlike anything that they've gone through in their lifetime, unlike anything that people have gone through before. Um, and I think that, um, this archive, I think will also help people who are going through disasters that we can't imagine yet. I've thought a lot about, you know, the overlap between this and, um, the kinds of steps we would have to take after a radiological emergency, after a limited nuclear exchange between countries, um, you know, we're going to encounter all kinds of very strange disasters in our climate change era in the era of the climate crisis and in the future that this will in some ways be seen as a prelude to. And so I think that this will be a resource for that. And it's also uh, historically, I mean, one of the sections of voices from Chernobyl that really stuck with me was the section where she talks to kind of party officials and scientists who, at least in the context of the interviews, will say that they really believed in the Soviet project and Chernobyl was what finally disenchanted them. And there are a lot of people who feel disenchanted by this response, by um, the kind of reckoning, by coming to grips with the systemic racism in the country um, and realizing that it's 
people who didn't think about it before now are thinking about it all the time mm-hmm. and thinking differently about the moral character of the country. There's so much the in, there's so much so, in what you just said. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. And so I think that this, this archive is also going to capture that pivotal moment. That it's, I mean, even in, in that way, the, that the pandemic, that the pandemic and George Floyd, George Floyd's murder side by side, you, the one opens the possibility for a much more, I mean, black men being gunned down in, a, in America is not a new story, but right. it takes on a different meaning, a new depth. And the one disaster reveals the other, as you're saying, Chernobyl somehow then reveals the sort of much deeper disaster of the end of the Soviet, the creeping end of the Soviet Union. There's something else I wanted to underline before we, before I lose it there, what you said, which I had not considered, that this group of interviews that you're doing, this archive that you're constructing forms the basis for future, for comparison mm-hmm. in disasters in a scale that we clearly are going to see, which is to say that they are slower moving and they are global. And this pandemic is is truly that. I hadn't thought of that. And then one other thing you said just in there, because I wanted to take off these points, it's so dense in what you were just talking about. That description you gave of the radiological disaster is exactly the way I felt in the entire month of March, because I'm sitting here in Princeton, New Jersey, and it felt like there had been a nuclear weapon had exploded somewhere close enough that it was dangerous to us, but it had not destroyed the town. That was the experience. And having read so many manuals from the 1960s of what people would experience after nuclear war, that was, that's what I summoned and felt like. And to your question about the gloves and, and what kind of protection, I was, I was reliving what was something that Americans never had to live through in the 60s, but they imagined it. And you know that that mm-hmm. better than I do, those imaginations and how even disaster that never happened can still have this really strong psychological impact on us as we're trying to process something we're living through. That's a lot to read back to you in a sense, but you're uncovering really interesting terrain here, Ryan. Thank you, Scott. Um, I, I I felt that in a certain way. I mean, I think that the that the pandemic has reordered a lot of people's orientation to the natural world and to the environment. I mean, I had a kind of a similar moment to you, except uh, I remember looking out the back door of my house, of my kitchen, and thinking to myself, "Well, at least, um, at least." you know, the natural world is doing fine. It was a weird thought because like I, you know, as a sociologist, I have all kinds of problematic, you know, like I like to problematize the idea of nature and the natural world versus the human made world. But I was looking outside at the birds in my bird feeder and thinking like, they're not going to get coronavirus and, and, you know, suffer from this thing. And luckily there's no cars around and there's no planes in the sky. And in a sense, you know, I'm, I was so used to thinking about the climate crisis and thinking about the disordered, you know, um, ecosystem that this was a disaster that for once didn't involve that. Right. And so even in a radiological disaster, I'd be worried about the birds falling from the sky and the, you know, but for this, it was different. And I think that Rebecca Elliott, a sociologist at LSE who I've I've been doing some work with um, has been exploring this topic in a really interesting way. The way that the pandemic has changed people's understandings of climate change. I think that's something that we're going to see a lot more as well. Sorry, my cat is very upset at me right now. No, that's fine. I've kept you over time, and we we really should 
wrap up. Um, and I just have one little kind of a small question for you, just your comment on this, which is, um, uh, are you going to be interviewed? Yes. Yes, for the project. One of the best innovations, and I can't claim credit for this, one of the best innovations I think of our project was that we're having everyone who is um, participating in the project as an interviewer or as a co-director be interviewed. And so I've actually participated in my second wave interview already. Um, and uh, I think it's interesting. So there are all kinds of reasons why I think it's a good idea. And like methodologically speaking, you should always participate in research so that you have a sense of what it's like, what you're putting people through. Mm-hmm. So even if you're, you know, if you're a survey researcher, you should take surveys. You know, if you're doing interviews, you should be interviewed yourself. Um, but I think that it's also going to create a record of what we were thinking at the time, which I think is going to be valuable to people. I've gone through archives and thought to myself, what is the work that went into this archive and what were they thinking when they were building it? Now sure. you're going to know. Yeah. But personally, it's, it was interesting for me to see to go back and look at my interviews and to see how different I was in April than I was when I was re-interviewed in August. I felt older. I was much more scattered. Um, You know, you really catch a um, temporal glimpse of what this pandemic did to people. Mm. Um, And you see it, you, you, no one knows you better than you know yourself in a certain sense. So you see it. Um, in general, and it's kind of one last thing. I, I like to end things on a positive note, but I will yeah. end it on a pessimistic note for a moment, which is to say that one of the things that we've come away from the second wave interviews with is just how fatigued people are yeah, sure. and how the coping mechanisms that they had put into place in the first couple of months are, for a lot of people, breaking down or wearing out. Um, people who were not used to dealing with trauma in particular have had a hard time with it. Um, people who've been through, um, again, state collapse or other disasters, even people who've gone through, you know, traumatic and turbulent childhoods um, seem to have a sort of, or people who have intense spiritual lives and, and are, are thinking um, thinking about this that way, are people who are able to subsume the pandemic into their professional lives in some way tend to be doing better. But I understand pandemic fatigue when people talk about it in that way. I mean, people are it's been a long time and, and um, it's, it just, uh, it's difficult to, I think, convey that. And it's difficult to get a sense of it if you've been living through it every day. But if you can go back and see how bright eyed and bushy tailed people were in March, relatively speaking, even though they were in this state of shock because of the pandemic, it's informative. Just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Ryan Hagen today, the co-director of the New York COVID-19 oral history, memory and narrative archive. And Ryan, just um, for the record too, you want to tell us the other members of the team? Yes, absolutely. So the other co-directors are um, besides myself, Denise Milstein, um, Amy Staracheski, uh, and um, Nissa Chow actually came on board as, as another co-director recently uh, to help us do kind of public outreach uh, and Mary Marshall Clark also at the um, at the uh, Oral History Center uh, here at Columbia. It's my great hope that I can get you and other members of the team to come back um, maybe in January and February and tell us even more about uh, what we're living through right now. I suppose uh, you'll have more to say to us We'd at like that you. time. 
Ryan Hagen, thank you so much for your time today. Everybody, you can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. We're going to be talking to writer Jared Misner. It's going to be a really great conversation. Looking forward to that. Stay healthy, everybody, and uh, see you tomorrow at 5 o'clock. Ryan, thanks again. Thank you, Scott.